Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. This is where we explore in-depth stuff you didn't learn in church. And believe me, there's plenty of it. <laughs> uh, I want to continue this discussion on uh, Joseph Smith and entheogens. I think this is an important subject. I'm late tonight because I wanted to do an earlier live session earlier than late Saturday night because all of you are going to be out on dates, of course, or or enjoying a good movie or just having a barbecue or just already asleep. <laughs> I can't blame you, but uh, I have... I took a hike earlier today. I'm I'm working on preparing more uh, YouTube videos for your viewing pleasure. I'm going to be giving you a lot of eye candy. And uh, so I went on a pretty massive hike up in my beautiful area of my country. And wow, I got back and I took a nap and now I'm awake. I'm ready to do another live session. Tomorrow morning, 10 is going to be the Sunday school. And tomorrow evening at 6 is going to be the fireside, where I continue analyzing the entheogenic aspects of Joseph Smith's spirituality, which I believe is a deeply profound subject. And so I only got to page two of this fantastic article. Hey, Gene Judson, how are you? Good to see you. Thanks for stopping by. So I'm going to continue on with this subject on entheogens, uh, and I want to kind of recapitulate real quick, all humans, these guys say, uh, and this is the study, this is the study by uh, Robert Beckstead, uh, Bryce Blankenagle, Cody Nicone, who's very knowledgeable of the entheogenic materials, and Michael Winkleman, uh, someone, this is the, this is the paper, in the Journal of Psychedelic Study. And someone mentioned that they had presented a sunstone a few years back. It was uh, a few years back, and I went and listened to that sunstone. Excellent presentation. Basically a brief uh, on this much better, more extended materials subject where they go into it in pretty good depth. And I really like that. Hey, TM. Hey, Obadiah. Bumbly, good to see you. Paula Edens. Hi, from Salt Lake City, Utah, the Mecca of Mormonism. Welcome, Paula, from Salt Lake City. We are glad you are here. Good to see you. Now, I'm not sure if I've ever seen you on one of my lives again. If this is your first time, thank you. Hope you keep coming back because I've got boatloads of crap to tell you. <laughs> I shouldn't put it that way, should I? I should be more serious. I should be more formal and, and professional and so on and so forth. But I mean, criminy, I'm a backyard professor. I don't even have to care what my hair looks like, right? Hey, Paul Osborne, how you doing? Good to see you. JB, maybe. Good to see you, buddy. <laughs> hey, Mike Weist, good to see you. Yeah, buddy. Newton Lemnos, hello, everybody. Okay, hey, we're all getting here. Thank goodness. I'm, I'm grateful you guys are willing to spend an hour or so with me on Saturday night. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, let me just basically start where I left off last time, where they 
where these guys note that all human experience and insight emerge in the chemistry of the brain. We know that by now, including the achievements of mathematics, science, epistemology, and even morality. Uh, these analysis of an antheogenic basis of Joseph Smith and and his uh, well his inducement of visions not only for himself, but for his followers as well, because he was constantly giving them the sacrament, and that was, so to, so to speak, quote, spiked wine. Uh, that's what we would call it. They, they were not abusing these substances. They were using them for religious purposes. And in Joseph Smith's day, he didn't have all the idiotic, ridiculous political rambling and mumbo-jumbo and stupidity and contradictions and hypocrisies of laws against entheogenic substances. That is not to say that there are not harmful drugs. It's too bad that people abuse things when we have them good so that it ruins it for everyone else. However, I am not advocating the use of LSD or marijuana or any of that. Let me make that perfectly clear at the outset once again. I did that in the last video. I will reiterate that. Just because Joseph Smith did doesn't mean we have to. And that I am saying you should. I am not doing that. None of the sites under the umbrella of Mormon Discussion Inc. are also None of them are saying this is how we have to do things. Just so you know, this is an historical approach. This is trying to uh, get inside the head <laughs> of Joseph Smith, right? Here's to Joseph Smith. The man was incredible. So anyway, okay. The profound and undeniable implications of entheogens are their ability to produce genuine mystical experiences that are phenomenologically indistinguishable from the mystical experiences that result from devoted spiritual exercises and practices or which occur spontaneously. Uh, simply, see, we understand now the brain is more of a filter to keep more out than to bring in. And so we are filtering out the vast majority of information with which the universe is bombarding us with every second of every day of our lives. So true in some respects, I, I love to imagine that my brain is a sponge, even though it's the size of a pea, it does absorb a whole bunch of stuff, I hope. And, and so I want it to absorb as much information as I can. But I think physically, just the simple way the synapses and neurons work within the brain, that we are extremely limited. Uh, we have to build our machines, for instance, to see x-rays, gamma rays, ultraviolet rays, black light, etc. And we know that even beyond our machines, there is so far as we can tell, no end to what is actually in reality. So, you know, when you say, yeah, I, I know reality, <laughs> be real careful. <laughs> we don't know diddly spit as far as that goes. So Paul had it right. You know, we seek through a glass darkly. We see through a glass darkly. That That is true. But anyway, all of that aside, let's get into this. Um, 
the clinical research establishes that it is pharmacology rather than personal expectation alone that enables entheogens to produce the standard core mystical features such as union with and an intuitive knowledge of God, a sense of transcendence of time and space, a connection with sacredness, a sense of ineffability uh, and positive mood. Now, Joseph was known as the cheery prophet. And he was always in a good mood, more or less. And we do know that the some entheogenic concoctions really do elevate the mood. And it just so happens that some of the materials in these so-called what we would call uppers, right? Well, some of these materials were available no matter where the Mormons resided. We now know that too. Entheogenic materials was definitely available to Joseph Smith in absolutely every area he lived in. So that so that's you know, and and they get into that uh, a little later on why we have very good probability that uh, Joseph Smith was working with entheogenic materials. Converts who were seekers, those whose greatest hunger was for spiritual gifts. Now, notice this: the mindset is also important. And I've said it too, you know, Mormonism brainwashes you. Uh, Scientology will brainwash you. Uh, our own culture here in America brainwashes us. It tries to convince us we can't think or focus for more than five minutes at a time, and we aren't supposed to really be learned, and uh, our college degrees have become a complete sham, etc. Don't let me get in on that topic, but uh, yeah, very few people... Uh, argue against that. I'm one who will definitely. Um, I disagree. I think the focus of the mind, the power of the human mind is far greater than we have ever given it credit for, both memorization, learning, retaining information and knowledge, etc. I'm definitely pro-mind. Yeah. So I don't, uh, I don't accept. I try hard not to accept and fall into the trap of being and I, I don't have any other better way to express this than just being dumbed down. Uh, and, and that's how it works. So AJ, AJ Adams, welcome. Lashram 32. Hey, patty cake, you made it. No, no. <laughs> All right. Good for you. You're out on a mushy hunt. Good deal. We're on a mushy hunt intellectually tonight and tomorrow morning at 10 and tomorrow night at 6. So these ideas that the seekers in Joseph Smith's era, and remember, it, they were the same. They had the same approach uh, from Britain when Joseph Smith sent a whole bunch of missionaries over there into Europe. Uh, there's now a real plausible explanation of why he chose that area too, because the entheogenic information and the pharmacological usage of materials that Mother Nature provided for us, God through the creation, if you will. Uh, was definitely prominent in Europe. Joseph Smith knew what he was doing when he sent those missionaries to Great Britain. He was bringing entheogenic materials back to him to learn more about. But I, I'm getting ahead of the story. The seekers, their attitudes, their minds, that does help determine what kind of a spiritual experience you're going to have when you utilize entheogenic sacraments. 
and and that's fundamental. And in their Sunstone presentation, I think it was, I think it was uh, the two of them, uh, Nokomi and uh, I, I think it was Blankenagel who presented the Sunstone. Gosh, I just saw it a day ago, and I still can't remember. I'm so fuzzed out mentally because of my hike and being wore out trying to give you some new video materials. You're going to love these new videos coming up. Hopefully, I will be able to get them to you within a week or two. So this idea, seekers, their greatest hunger was for the spiritual gifts. They wanted the healings. They wanted the prophecy. They wanted the, the visions, the tongues, the miracles, the spiritual raptures, etc. And interestingly enough, not in the official history of the church. No, 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 no. Of course not. They have left all of this type of stuff out because it reminds the holy brethren of Salt Lake City of the Protestant materials, the Protestant way, and we have the higher way. Well, in Joseph Smith's day, they had holy roller convocations. And there is some evidence of that, and it and it is based on the entheogenic materials. I mean, all of the symptoms uh, point to that. And Joseph Smith was leading the way. He was actually conducting the meetings and carefully making sure things went well. When he promised his followers, he said, look, uh, tonight we're going to see Jesus Christ. And then he gave him the sacrament, and then fasting and prayer. And of course, he would give some kind of a, you know, whoop to do sermon or whatever. But in the process of singing hymns, now singing, no joke, singing or humming, you know, the of the East, the chants, etc. That really does change your brainwaves. That is not just uh, spiritual mumbo jumbo, fuzzy, stupid stuff. That actually does. The, the theme is vibration. Uh, chemical connections in the brain, vibration. You change the vibration rate. What happens when you change the vibration rate with vision? Yeah, you see different colors. That's not just spiritual mumbo jumbo. That's actual. And so this idea of putting you in the mood, so to speak, get your vibration. You know, the Beach Boys, I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me excitation. Good, 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 good vibrations. Now, you know why I wasn't a Beach Boy, but man, I used to love to skateboard to, to their songs. <laughs> this is a very real theme, truly. So, it's not hokey. It does happen. And it's happened to hundreds of millions of people throughout time all over the world. And, and that's the other thing that technically our science has just basically poo-pooed and ignored. Uh, and it is to its detriment as far as that goes. So anyway. All right. Tom Miller. Hey, welcome. So here's what they say. Now, these converts, when they these seekers, when they showed up in Joseph Smith's backyard, they literally sacrificed everything. They really did. Now, um, Joseph Smith made a promise and he had to deliver. And I, through the concourse of his life, associating with the people he associated with, uh, the contacts with the American Indians 
were much more than what the official history of the church has noted. And he was talking to them and he was working with them because their spiritual approach was using the entheogenic materials as well, interestingly enough. Lumen Walters was Joseph Smith's mentor in the treasure digging company that he was a young lad with. And Lumen Walters was a very prominent, well-known physician. Some called him a quack. He didn't do it the way the doctors of orthodoxy did. And so they thought he was a quack, but he certainly would have been passing on information to Joseph Smith. And he was from Europe, interestingly enough. So anyway, we propose that the entheogenic context of early Mormon involved sacraments, the ordinances. Now, the anointing with oil, this was one of the things I go, oh, yeah, duh. It's staring me right in the face and I couldn't see it. Uh, the anointing with oil. The oil was a special mixture that could be absorbed in the skin. And when they anointed you with oil, it wasn't just a little, oh, we've got to open up our little vial and pour just a little tiny bit on the tip of our finger and just barely touch you and then give you a blessing like in today's Mormonism. When they anointed you with oil, they smeared it on you. Handfuls. It was an anointing, the real McCoy. And, and it's what I've said in previous videos and other videos. What we have today is a placebo. Uh, and that's because the modern church uh, rejects the entheogenic aspect. And, and it's to their loss as far as that goes. Doesn't bother me that they reject it, but it should some who want to see in Mormonism the true church, uh, well, Maybe you guys better start sharing the real Joseph Smith with your church leaders then. You know, they've remained in the dark long enough, if that means something to you. Me, I'm going to share the information with my wonderful audience here. So, hey, Scott, I understand. That's all good. Scott does not agree with the oil bath. It, not necessarily an oil bath, but uh, it wasn't just a little tiny drop that you barely touch on the crown of the head either. So... Uh, anciently, they used to bathe in the oil. So, you know. Anyway, critical to the rise of convert members or numbers that the church experienced was that between 1830 and 1836, so for a six-year period here, seeker converts participating in Mormon rituals in which sacraments were ingested or anointing oils applied, well, these people did have the dreams. They actually did speak in tongues. They had miracles and spiritual raptures. They acquired what Joseph Smith promised. That was one reason why they really did stick with him. Yeah. Today's leaders won't even show any of the spiritual gifts. They don't have them, let alone promise everyone else you'll have them. You'll be able to use them too, you know. And so many enjoyed the visions of God and Jesus Christ. The experiences surrounding the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in 1836 have been called the Mormon Pentecost. And that was an, an, a very important event. And it had a similar impact on the rise of the early Mormonism as the early Christian Pentecost had on the rise of Christianity. Both sects faced the same charges of drug-related visions. 
And if you remember that in Acts 2, 1 through 31, you'll, you'll be able to read that. So anyway, sectarian observers were up. Now, this is what is so fantastically interesting. And, and in their Sunstone presentation, uh, I really liked the analogy they used. They said, look, on, on this entire subject here, Joseph Smith and entheogenic uh, sacraments, oils, anointings, etc. We don't have a smoking gun, but we have a lot of bullet holes. And I thought, now there's an analogy. <laughs> I really like how they presented that. I, I should have recorded that and played it for you. But anyway, it, it's available on Sunstone. You can Google it. I mean, crime any I did. It's easy to find. It's a wonderful, it's about, a 40 minute presentation and then they do have a question and answer period afterward fun stuff just another another view that is fun and worth looking into what the church has left out is the response of some of the neighbors of the mormons the sectarian responses to what was going on in the mormon community and their descriptions of what would happen when these Mormons would get together and have all their meetings. Man, what the hell is going on behind those closed doors? Because it got pretty cotton picking wild. I didn't realize that. You're not going to get it reading the official history of the church. Now that the church has finally grown a brain cell or two and decided to start publishing all of these, the Joseph Smith papers, perhaps we'll find better materials than that. And in fact, they do. But So the large Mormon meetings continued for successive days. They were held, earnest preachings, and alarming exhortations were given. Swoons, trances, jerkings, and visions were frequent. Now, every one of these symptoms can be given through entheogenic use. And uh, in fact, that was the main criticism against the Kirtland Temple experience, not only from some of the Mormons who participated in it, but of the people who came to see, and because it didn't just last for a mere hour. <laughs> I mean, it went on and on and on, day, night, and day. So the, the remarkable thing is that affected Joseph Smith. The, the people's, some people's strong negative reaction made it so that he toned it down in the Nauvoo period. But again, it actually went underground more or less somewhat between Kirtland and then up into Nauvoo, beginning, it disappeared more or less for uh, five or six years. Then once they got into Nauvoo, all of the visions, the prophecies, the, the uh, speaking in tongues, etc., as they were beginning to build up the Nauvoo Temple. See, it wasn't completed in Joseph Smith's day. He died too early, but he was still trying to give the endowment. Now, the endowment began with a sacrament. The endowment of the temple ceremony is entheogenic-based. And that is why they had their ascent. That is why they saw the, the ritual that they were going through. That's why they were visited by 
the heavenly messengers. Joseph Smith promised them. They said, he said, look, we've got to create this holy space, temple, you know, a, a place set apart, right? The temple, the cross, the, the cross that uh, mimics the universe, it, it orients you to the universe. That's the theory of all the ancient temples. And astronomically, uh, there's a whole bunch of books on the Maya cosmos and echoes of the ancient skies and sky watchers of ancient Mexico by Avini and stairway to the stars and all that jazz. Uh, I've got all my stuff up there for the astronomical ancients. They... Uh, tied into the cosmos because they flew out into the cosmos. And there are ancient materials that even the Mormon apologists love to use to try to authenticate their scriptures. The Apocalypse of Abraham is one of them, the Testament of Abraham. Abraham goes on that heavenly journey with a messenger, and then he describes all kinds of stuff. Well, entheogenic ascensions like that. This was happening in early Mormonism. Very interesting stuff. A non-Mormon. Now, this is one of the bullet holes. And, and when they brought this up, uh, I had never heard of this experience before. This is definitely not in the whitewashed church history. Boyd K. Packer, uh, in the end, ends up being the fool. The idiot that nobody respects and likes anymore, simply because of his naive myopia of uh, trying to brainwash and dumb down everybody else. I'm so grateful to my heavenly father that I didn't fall for the ridiculously stupid dumbing down of Boyd K. Packer's bullshit agenda. I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's your legacy, Boyd. That's your legacy. And I'm not the only one, I promise. So, a non-Mormon, medically trained observer, James J. Moss. Now, this gentleman witnessed several meetings. He concluded that the strange behaviors and the visions were produced by drinking, quote, medicated sacramental wine. And he contemplated stealing a bottle in order to test it, but it was too, the, the place was too full. But he knew what was going on. Now, that's not a smoking gun, but that's really giving you the bullet hole so to speak, as they use that analogy. That's pretty good stuff. That's on page 214 in this Journal of Psychedelic Studies, 2019. Brand new stuff. Well, three years old. So he wanted to see if it was drugged or not. Now, importantly, Moss, who was a believing Campbellite now, and let's see, again, he was one of the neighbors, right? He was a believing Campbellite, and he had witnessed Methodist enthusiasm as well, Okay, so he's got some experience here, right? And this was, of course, going on at the same time. He was distinguishing uh, between the characteristic religious enthusiasm and the sensational early Mormon visionary experience. He wanted to know how come so many of these guys over here, these Mormons, man, one, two, three, 30, 75, 149,000 of them have visions, but the Methodists don't. How are these guys pulling it off? You know, what is going on? And that is why he wanted to go to one of his meetings and, and see what was happening. And that's why he suspected the medicated sacramental wine. 
He knew about that. He knew that was possible. But the real interesting thing is, although Joseph Smith was not present at these meetings, he attended subsequent meetings where the sacrament produced similar bodily manifestations. So in response to the multiple complaints generated by the strange behaviors of Mormon enthusiasts, Joseph Smith closed sacrament meetings to outside observers. <laughs> Interesting, right? He restricted attendance to male members only. He added anointings with oil and began construction of a temple in Kirtland, Ohio. And during the dedication period of the Kirtland Temple in the early 1836, in mass visions were once again reported by many of those who had participated with the same accusations of drug sacramental wine. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So the evidence for the use of Joseph Smith's use of entheogens explained in detail in this paper, and it really is. It, it's really tremendous. It's based on six straightforward phenomenon reported or observed during Joseph Smith's life. So let's see what these six are. Number one. Entheogens were found in every area the Smith family resided and produced visions and spiritual ecstasies. Number two, Joseph Smith was mentored by individuals with experience in esoteric fields of knowledge. Number three, visionary experience in early Mormonism was frequently on demand rather than spontaneous. Number four, Joseph Smith devised a method to facilitate dramatic religious experience among his followers, and that is why he built the temples, so that they could have a ritual in which they actually lived through the experience to get to heaven, right? That, that's the thing. And finally, the sixth thing is, oh no, the fifth thing. There was an association between early Mormon visionary experience and participation in Mormon ordinances where bread and wine were served and oil anointings were received. And then finally, number six, visionary experiences of the magnitude experienced during Joseph Smith's life ceased at his death. No one kept having them only Joseph Smith, and his direct followers. And, and that was an anomaly in my mind, even as an apologist. I, I wondered where has all of it gone and why? This, this is a beautiful explanation for why. Very interesting. So we find the best explanation for these phenomenon is Joseph Smith's personal use of entheogens and his administration of entheogens to early Mormon converts. Now, entheogens as the means, and I thought this was really interesting how they bring in the Book of Mormon into this. Yeah, the Book of Mormon. I said that correctly. So in contrast to traditional Christianity here, Smith consistently understood matter and the body to be sacred, not profane. For Joseph Smith, the physical did not impede the spiritual. 
but it was instead the route, the route to the spiritual. Now, this unique aspect of Joseph Smith's theology and prophetic practice finds expression in his doctrine of means. In Smith's theology, divine action operates through the instrumentality of material causes, including human action and natural law. The Book of Mormon raises this idea to the status of a general law of divine action asserting the Lord God worketh through means. Joseph Smith's doctrine that God operates by means and that the physical is a gateway to the spiritual provides a theological rationale for using entheogenic herbs and fungi. Now, in the view of some prominent Mormons, entheogens are not prohibited by Joseph Smith's dietary word of wisdom. And they talk about this. I'll get to that. Such entheogens would be physical means God has provided for humankind to achieve spiritual ends. Smith's approach anticipated recent developments in the study of religion, particularly the role of physical processes plays in religious experience. Joseph Smith likely understood that entheogens were a trigger for religious experience, a fact vindicated when considering entheogens as simple molecules. They cannot create the richness of early Mormon visions and ecstasies without the human capacity for religious experience. Instead, the religious experience is a product of the body through the action of entheogenic and exogenous neurotransmitters on human cognition. Mormons regularly modify their physical chemistry to promote spiritual experience through the Mormon practice of monthly prayer and fasting. But this is an unreliable method of inducing a transcendent spiritual experience of the nature experienced at the foundation of Mormonism. So in Smith's case, the word of wisdom, he overtly endorses the use of one mind-altering substance for spiritual ends, wine in the sacrament of communion. DNC 89.5. The revelation further teaches that all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, the nature and use of man every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. DNC 89, 10 and 11. So adherence to the, prohibit the prohibition of addictive substances and the use herbs carries the promise of wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures and protection from the destroying angel. DNC 89, 19 through 21. Herbs were physical means to profound religious experience, is what we're grasping here. Experiences that rarely occur without using entheogens. So evidence suggests that Joseph Smith gained knowledge and skill in working with herbs, and they quote DNC 4243, DNC 59, 17 through 18, and DNC 89, 10 through 11 including entheogens. Joseph Smith's grandson, Frederick M. Smith, came to the same 
conclusion. Very interesting. And they do discuss that as well. So this is kind of uh, getting very interesting. I know I use that word too much, interesting. But that's because it is interesting. What other word can I use? You know, fascinating, adroit, whatever. <laughs> the point is, it's holding my attention. And it's good enough that I'm being able to share it with you, my wonderful, loving friends. So, Joseph Smith was also a restorationist, a very important key here now. And he advocated a unique form of Native American restoration or revival, however you want to call it. From its title page onward, the Book of Mormon advocated a restoration of Native temporal and spiritual power, and Smith sought alliances with Native Americans and traded objects of spiritual significance with them. If Smith learned of entheogens that bore the imperature of Native American shamanism, he would have likely been likely to seek mentors in their use, and not just for himself now, but for the converts of his church. That makes sense. Besides facilitating religious visions and spiritual ecstasies, entheogens have remarkable antidepressant properties, uh, suggesting a motivation. And, and yeah, it could be an unconscious one, but it's still a motivation for their use by the Smith family and in early Mormonism. And the entire Smith family was involved with entheogenic materials. And this is so remarkably brought out. <laughs> it, the connect, it's kind of like uh, when I got that book, uh, Method Infinite, the overabundant, overwhelming uh, influence of Freemasonry is so obvious. Once you quit reading Mormon's history and read the actual historians, it's the same thing with the entheogens and with who Joseph Smith was associating with, and why, and how, <laughs> and where. I mean, wow, <laughs> it's all there when you really uh, stop and ponder it. So, oh, wholesome herbs God hath ordained. So, that Joseph Smith did not consider entheogens a problem is evident from his attitude toward herbs. Joseph Smith knew of herbs and their uses, and he claimed the requisite knowledge and skill to devise and prescribe herbal remedies for others. Joseph Smith's development into a village scryer or seer involved following the path set forward in several esoteric traditions of the area he grew up, and possibly from his interpretation of biblical passages indicating the ingestion, the the ingestion. Wow. The ingestion <laughs> of some material preceding the visions of Ezekiel and John. Oh, now look at this. We might have a biblical precedent. Let's keep looking here. So in line with other health edicts in the 19th century, in 1835, Joseph Smith delivered a revelation called the Word of Wisdom, and this suggesting dietary practices and the proper and improper uses of alcohol and tobacco and other substances. However, Smith carved out an exception for plant and herb medicine in the Word of Wisdom. Again, Verily I say unto you, all wholesome herbs, God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. Interestingly enough, the, 
first anti-Mormon book, Mormonism Unveiled by Eber D. Howe, attributed the exemption carved out for herbs in the season thereof to Frederick G. Williams' influence on Joseph Smith. This gets interesting quick. Howe references William's herbarium on either side of his Kirtland home while disparaging his communion with spirits from the other worlds. So Frederick G. Williams was an herbalist, and he was one of Joseph Smith's closest associates and trusted friends. Very interesting here. So the Smith family exemption of entheogenic herbs as prohibited substances in the word of wisdom, it seems generational, considering that his father, Joseph Smith's, or, or I mean, I'm sorry, not his father, when we consider Joseph Smith Jr.'s grandson, Frederick M. Smith, also a prophet to the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he carved out a similar exemption for peyote. And they discuss that also. Very, very cool. So the descriptions of early Mormon visions, when we follow these and we see their ecstasies, we correlate with a clinical syndrome suggestive of intoxication with visionary anticholinergic substances. So, and then they, they describe the historical setting of the ancestors and the mentors and the colleagues uh, for Joseph Smith to fulfill his promise. I'm not going to get into the, uh, the Salem witch trials. Joseph Smith's ancestors were involved in those Salem witch trials. I'm not going to go through that right now. Uh, but for Joseph Smith to fulfill his promise that every Mormon convert would have visions of God, and he also promised them spiritual ecstasies, he needed assistance from trusted associates who would covertly procure, process, store, and administer entheogens. Several early church leaders, including the Smiths, the Cowdery, and Whitmer families in particular, were deeply invested in the study of occult practices and herbal, plant, pharmaceutical, folk medicine, slash craft, and the utilization of spiritus liquors. And that's both from D. Michael Quinn and Brooke in his book. Uh, I've got it right here somewhere. Yeah, The Refiner's Fire. So both Quinn and, and Brooke have commented on this also. So if, if we've kept up to date with the real historians instead of the sham faith-promoting historians, uh, we have a broader introduction and context here with which to base reality. And now it gets interesting because the uh, the folk, uh, the folk medicine, the craft, the practice, the use, the knowledge, etc. It dovetails beautifully with the occult. Now the word occult is not; it does not mean evil. That that's just that's ridiculous. That's some kind of idiotic Christian apologetic that Mormons unfortunately have picked up and imagine they have the Holy Ghost testifying to them that they know what it's all about. They don't know diddly spit. Occult means hidden. Occult is what is secret, not evil, right? Get that. <laughs> that's important. Well, the occult, 
uh, folk magic, the hidden folk magic, along with the occult, I'll say medicine, pharmaceutical materials, was just literally saturated in Joseph Smith's era and time and geography throughout the course of his life. It didn't matter whether he was 15. It didn't matter when he was 40. It was always all there. Very, very uh, well uh, explained and documented here in this paper. Now, Joseph Smith's father, this is probably one of those details that Boyd K. Packer didn't like presenting everything. He said, do you have to constantly present all of the history? Can't we get to the real good spiritual stuff and just focus on that? Well, you misunderstand, you miss and you misunderstand the entire context, which is the reason why you never heard Boyd K. Packer describe Joseph Smith's treasure digging and using a seer stone, uh, the idea of, of all those themes and his Jupiter talisman and all that. You never heard about any of that from Boyd K. Packer, right? Because he wasn't interested in the full context. He wanted a specific one that his simple mind could grasp. And so he left out 99% of the good stuff and put in just the 1% of dumbed down uh, Mormonism. And that's what we are unfortunately inherited him and, and, the church continues to try to proceed in that direction, although they have broadened a little bit. So you got to give them credit for that. Yeah. Joseph Smith's dad is a really important base here. This is now in method infinite. When we are talking about the Freemasonry, once again, the base, the anchor point for Joseph Smith was, again, his dad, his father. Joseph Sr. was involved in masonry, and he encouraged, he didn't discourage, he didn't stop them, Joseph Smith's brothers, his uncles, etc., becoming Masons also. Amazingly, Joseph Smith's dad is also the entheogenic anchor. Let's take a look. His knowledge of preparing plant extracts was recorded in 1811. And here he collected and he crystallized the 2018 equivalent of $57,000 worth of ginseng root. This was his business. I didn't know that. How fascinating. I remember reading, I believe it was in uh, Bushman, uh, Rust on Rolling. I think I remember reading it in later historians who finally had had enough of the Mickey Mouse kindergarten style of, of today's church in history. They dug into the materials, but yes, he was involved in ginseng root, intended for sale in China. Administration of ginseng root extract compares well with modafinil, a widely prescribed pharmaceutical drug used to treat excessive daytime sleepiness associated with narcolepsy or shift work. 
having crystallized and likely made use of this psychoactive themselves, the Smiths would have had no difficulty collecting and processing and storing more potent psychoactive plants and fungi for their medicinal and magical religious purposes. And they have a wonderful picture of the ginseng root right there. That's the stuff Joseph Smith's dad was using. And he was obviously doing it for a long time and in large quantities. $57,000 worth. We're talking serious cash, money, mucho dinero. Right? Well, Quinn has argued, and uh, this is D. Michael Quinn, early Mormonism and the magic worldview. He's argued that the Smiths who lived in Vermont and New Hampshire and in upstate New York and northern Ohio, they engaged several magical religious practitioners of which Lumen Walters, and they go into more depth, played a significant role as mentor to both Joseph and to his dad, his father, Joseph Sr., the Smith family, including Joseph Jr., possessed and employed several magical-related artifacts, including astrological charts, magical parchments, a ceremonial dagger, an alchemical amulet, a silver Jupiter talisman, and a cane that all manifest direct indebtedness to occultists, including Sibley and Scott and Agrippa and Barrett. Now, these are major occultists. Notice, again, quit equating occult with Satanism and the devil. That's stupid. That's wrong. Occult means secret, hidden. Okay? The Mormon endowment is very properly termed occult. You want to freak Mormons out? Start telling them that. And then tell them, get off your dead, lazy, learning butt and look it up. <laughs> See what a cult means. <laughs> that might be kind of fun as an obnoxious thing to do, huh? Well, Quinn characterizes these occult books of enormous significance to the Smith family, and especially to Joseph Jr., whose cane, now Joseph's cane itself, was inscribed with symbols from the Magus, Francis Barrett's Magus, and I, I have a copy of that fascinating book. Jupiter reigns over Joseph Smith. That's what was on his cane, right? Very interesting. The silver Jupiter talisman bears the marks of Jupiter also. And there's a there's a picture of the talisman. You've seen this before. That's not nothing new. It's always good to uh, do a repeat, though, just to keep it in our minds that this historical context, uh, mushrooms, <laughs> pun intended. Oh, come on, give me a break. It mushrooms into a much wider context, yeah, than what we've been raised with. He possessed this Jupiter talisman and a cane with a carved serpent, a uh, character in the Edenic allegory, and this was very important to, uh, to Joseph Smith's early Mormonism. The biblical uh, Edenic story. And they explain that real interesting, just beautifully, in a moment. 
And the serpent, actually, was one animal believed to be governed by both Saturn and, guess who? Jupiter. Yeah. So Quinn argues shows that Smith relied on the works of occultists Francis Barrett and Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa, 1486 to 1535 now, so we're talking a couple of centuries previous to Joseph Smith, about the same distance away from Joseph Smith as we are from Joseph Smith, just on the other side. He names henbane, mandrake, and black poppy as three herbs under the power of Jupiter. Ooh, are we finding historic context here? Yes, we are. According to Barrett, henbane and black poppy are among the herbs used to invoke the images of spirits through proper suffumigations involving hemlock, henbane, black poppies, mandrake roots, and other plants. Now, also, Joseph Smith possessed an esoteric amulet that seems to bear symbols belonging to both alchemy and masonry and representing psilocybe species mushrooms. And they show this. I'll show you. <laughs> Fun stuff, yeah. You didn't get this from priesthood meeting manuals, did you? <laughs> Oh, now, okay, how long have I been? Okay, we're we're approaching an hour. I can do this. Uh, I can share this. This is really quite important. I, I'm going to go ahead and give you the full, uh, the full gambit here. I'm not going to condense this. I've been, see, I've been coloring, color coding which parts I'm going to read, and I'm reading way more of the white than I thought I was going to, simply because it is all so worth understanding. I mean, if I could take the time, I would read the whole blasted thing to you, but you probably could do that on your own. I'm just kind of giving you the heads up. Hey, there's something to this. You might want to at least check into it. Okay, so now they explore the, uh, hey, Mormon Yeshiva, good to see you, buddy. Oh, JC, good to see you. Sydney Schoblom. Good to see. I hope I pronounce your name right. Don't mean to mispronounce it, my friend. Tom Miller, Patty Cake. Oh, yeah, you're still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, Heather, welcome. Uh, okay, I've, I've got to say hi to a few more of you. L let me share their full context of the visions. And, and once more, let's, let's realize that uh, what this is doing for us is it's helping us uh, Find, we can now see uh, stronger, better, more comprehensively the actual influences that were with Joseph Smith, and they aren't just cribbed, made up, phony, or anti-Mormon attempts to bring Joseph Smith down back to a natural, normal level. Joseph Smith was always down to a natural, normal level, just like all of us. Uh, it is the Mormons who have falsely mythologized and deified him in this life when that should be occurring in the next life, according to even Smith's theology. <laughs> but Mormons are impatient, you know. So, But they, they have 
misconstrued this. Uh, whenever anything comes up that they don't like, they just simply stupidly label it anti-Mormonism. So they think that's worth the answer, that that is the answer. And so they remain in their dark ignorance. But we who are looking for further light and knowledge that Father promised through delicious good herbs, uh, find a better context. It begins, ironically enough, with both of Joseph Smith's parents. Let's take a look. So in 1853, Lucy Max Smith related several family dreams in her book, Biographical Sketches of Joseph Smith the Prophet and His Progenitors for Many Generations. And it's from this book that we learn about Joseph Smith's life growing up in the magically and religiously charged environments of sparsely populated New England and upstate New York. Lucy's first vision. See, it didn't start with Joseph Smith. It started with his mom. <laughs> yeah. Fun to expand our minds with the expanded context, Edmund. The golden Amanita muscaria could be the mushroom that best fits Lucy Max Smith's description in her remarkable first vision. Lucy's dream occurred, 1802 to 1808, at least three years before her husband's two dreams in 1811, described below, and 1812, and 12 years before her son's first vision. Joseph Sr., had just informed Lucy it was best for her to desist attending the Methodist Church. And his father and his older brother, of course, they were very displeased. His older brother was the one that brought in Thomas Paine's book and threw it at Joseph Jr. or Sr. and said, you damn well better read that until you understand it and quit attending these stupid bullshit churches. A lot of us could take that advice <laughs> today, right? Boy, they thought the churches were bad back then. Whoa. If they had seen what, what it was going to become, oh, I'll bet it had curled their toenails. <laughs> so anyway, they were displeased with it. So, so Joseph Sr. stayed away from all the denominations. So Lucy related, and here is her first vision. After praying for some time, she fell asleep and had the following dream in which she saw trees that were very beautiful. They were well proportioned and they towered with majestic beauty to a great height. I saw one of them was surrounded with a bright belt that shone like burnished gold, but far more brilliantly. Now, Amanita muscaria occasionally forms fairy rings around the host tree, and the color of a mature Amanita muscaria is shown in figure five, which I will show you, takes on a metallic sheen ranging in color from red-orange to golden or bronze. Now, I understood all of this from reading Carl Rock's materials, 
who shows that descriptions of the golden crown on a king's head, etc., could be descriptions of the mushroom in the fairy tales of Europe, very interestingly. This is a feature enhanced by early morning or evening light. Further aging and drying uh, converts the ibotenic acid to the more hallucinogenic and less toxic muscimol. And once completely dry, the golden mushroom power is complete. And this is the mushroom right there, the Amanita muscara. And then there it is when it's fully ripe, when it's or, uh, just partially dried. Takes on a golden hue. So a golden Amanita muscaria surrounding its host tree may have been one of Lucy's waking memories and incorporated into this dream because she was out there in the fields also and in the forests with her husband helping him with his ginseng company. Lucy's dream ended with her mood lightened as she concluded that her husband would share her feelings when more advanced in life, would rejoice therein, and unto him would be added intelligence, happiness, glory, and everlasting life. That's what Lucy's first vision dream told her. That's amazing, because that happened. Right? You go, oh, hey. <laughs> Remarkable. So Lucy's dream included a conscious memory of having seen a burnished gold. There's your burnished gold. That's a wonderful picture of that mushroom, man. A burnished gold ring of Amanita, probably of Amanita muscaria. So if Lucy deliberately tried this entheogenic fungus, she may have done so as treatment for her lifelong depression. That, that's uh, now... Not only did his mom have a first vision before Joseph Jr., but so did Joseph Sr., his dad. Now, this is really cool to grasp of the influence, the impact of this cultural, this magical, entheogenic cultural basis from Joseph Smith, not because he was being tempted by Satan. You know, throw the modern Mormon bullshit stupidity out the window, man. That's not it. It is because his parents, not to mention his grandparents, were completely steeped in this. just like some mushroom teas are steeped. So let's look at Joseph Smith Sr.'s first vision. He also had one. So two dreams reported by Joseph Smith Sr. strongly suggest experiences with entheogens whose content contains not only allusions to entheogens, but also some familiarity with esoteric allegory and symbolism. So here we go. Let's see what dad has to say about this. The Datura dream. Now, in what his wife described as his first vision, Joseph Sr. found himself entirely alone. However, he was accompanied by an attendant spirit. 
So in the desolate field before him, Joseph Sr. saw only dead fallen timber, and he heard only death-like silence. Ooh, I, I mean, that's one of the symptoms, you guys. No joke. Oh, man. Querying his attendant spirit on the meaning of such desolation and dreariness, Joseph Smith Sr. was told that ahead he would find a certain log, a box, the contents of which, if you eat thereof, will make you wise. Shortly after tasting the contents, Joseph Sr. reports being threatened by all manner of beasts bellowing most terrifically. And I must say, I... I've got goosebumps on my arms right now because this is a hallmark sign of mushroom ingestion, ingestion in antiquity, the bellowing of the bull. There is a loud roar. Now, see, in Kirtland, uh, the people experienced the sound of what? The mighty rushing wind. It, it, there are auditory hallucinations involved as well as visionary, you guys. And Carl Ruck in his materials, he goes on for pages and pages. When I, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps all over myself. <laughs> because that instantly, I just go, oh my gosh, I've read this in Ruck. Yeah, really cool. So all manner beasts bellowing most terrifically. Well, of course, he panics. You can't help that. He panics. Notice the remarkable parallels with Joseph Smith Jr.'s first vision here, you guys. For real. So he escaped on the fly. And when he returned to his natural senses, Joseph Sr. found himself trembling. Perfecto symptom. Despite the frightful experience, Joseph Sr. reported being perfectly happy. So the following Doctora experience posted online is impressive for its robust emotional impact, the overlay of visionary material on everyday reality, and the generation of a different reality. You effectively keep your rational, sober mind along with your ego while you're on Doctora. It's rather that your sober mind is experiencing a completely different reality. Imagine normal sobriety, but as you start to dream while awake. So rather than enlightenment through ego death, the nightshades offer dimensional travel to other planes of reality. Interesting, interesting. So this frightening aspect of Smith's dream what this helps us grasp is it suggests a waking experience with Doctora Fruit and his memory of the biblical warnings of death, thou shalt surely die, associated with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here comes the Edenic story again. 
very important in Joseph Smith Jr.'s theological sermons. So it didn't start with Joseph Jr. Yeah, now this is great stuff. We're getting moved back in time for the proper background and influence on Joseph Jr. Well, how could he have known all that stuff? Well, parents kind and dear were a huge part of this. Yes, fundamentally so. So, with this Edenic story, Genesis 2.17 in his mind, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the partaking of the fruit, which Joseph Sr. was specifically told to do so, coupled with his awareness of reports of fatalities associated with Datura poisoning, Smith's guide echoes the serpent in Genesis 3.3. Oh, wow! who advises that eating of the fruit will make you wise. <laughs> An element of Joseph Sr.'s first dream also reappears in his second dream now. Thorns. Thorns. Significantly, thorns are introduced into the world according to Genesis 3 and 3, because of the ingestion of the forbidden fruit of the tree, perhaps symbolically uh, referencing the thorny mature datura seed pod. Well, what then was the knowledge that Joseph Sr. received from his spirit guide and his dreams? A fair question. According to his wife, now this is Joseph's mom, Lucy Max Smith, following his two dreams, Joseph Sr. seemed more confirmed than ever in the opinion that there was no order or class of religionists that knew any more concerning the kingdom of God than those of the world, or such as made no profession of religion, whatever. So, Amanita Muscaria dream, let's look at this, the same year as the first dream, Joseph Sr. had a second antheogen-related dream, which involved basking in ecstasy, the joy and the love associated with the Edenic tree of life. Can't get away from that Garden of Eden theme, can we? With this antheogenic material. Very interesting. So in this dream, which he related to his wife, Lucy, a psychopomp leads Joseph Sr. to a tree with beautiful branches spread themselves somewhat like an umbrella, and it bore a kind of a fruit. It shaped much like a chestnut burr and as white as snow, if possible, whiter. So as he watched the chestnut shells commenced opening and shedding their particles or the fruit which they contained, which was of dazzling whiteness. When Nephi's dream in the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. And critics have mentioned that. Terrifies the Mormons, but they try every which way to find an ancient context for it and as if that... <laughs> as if that makes a difference. It doesn't. So as he watched the chestnut shells commenced opening and shedding their particles, I, I read that already, sorry, when he partook of the fruit, the white fruit, 
he experienced something delicious beyond description. And inviting his family to eat, they got down on their knees and they scooped the fruit up, eating it by double handfuls. So in this dream, Joseph Sr. incorporates the spiny, thorny fruit of the chestnut, a feature of the first dream which is similar in appearance to the fruit of Doctora. Instead of Doctora, however, the umbrella-shaped fruit scooped from the ground in the second dream evokes images of dazzling white spores dropping from the gills of an Amanita muscaria against a bright background or on a black surface. Joseph Sr.'s esoteric Christian Amanita muscaria dream concludes with Joseph Sr. explaining to his wife Lucy, here's what he says, I drew near and began to eat the fruit of it, and I found it delicious beyond description. As I was eating, I said in my heart, I cannot eat this alone. I must bring my wife and children, and they may partake with me. I went and brought my family, which consisted of a wife and seven children, and we all commenced eating and praising God for his blessing. We were exceedingly happy, insomuch that our joy could not be easily expressed. Fascinating. Absolutely awesome. And I do, oh, good. I'm only at a, an hour and 12 minutes, so I've got more time still to describe Emma Smith. Emma Hale, Joseph's wife, she was also gifted in using herbs. One of Emma's medicines was a healing salve that contained Jimson weed or Datura stramonium. And when the Sauk Indians visited Nauvoo in 1841, and here's one of the big clues. When the Sauk Indians visited in 1841, she exchanged recipe for herbal medicines with the wife of Chief Keokuk. In 1867, Emma wrote to her son, Joseph Smith III, I will tell you now how I made the salve. Of sweet elderbark, a good large handful after it is scraped, and as much jimson weed, leaves, and buds, if they are green and tender enough to be pounded up fine. So Emma's grandchildren also reported her use of psychoactive medicinal beer, ginseng, and lobelia, or Indian tobacco. Ginseng has stimulant, antidepressant, and aphrodisiac properties, while lobelia is a hallucinogen and a sedative. This had entheogenic uses among the Native Americans. Now, they, they begin to introduce the subject of the Native Americans and I thought this key was really important because uh, there were more visitations. There was much more communication between the early Mormons and the Indians 
than we have supposed from reading the official uh, sanitized Mormon history. And in fact, uh, early on, Joseph Smith was sending missionaries to the Lamanites. I believe there are a couple of sections in the Doctrine and Covenants that describe that just as that. And so they were keeping in fairly close touch. And in point of fact, I do believe that was one of the points of contention between the Mormons and their neighbors, and especially in the Nauvoo era. Um, because they had gone further west, and so they had closer, they had the easier chance, the easier ability to contact the Indians, and uh, the nation did not like that. They were trying to get rid of the Indians, and Smith was befriending them. So this is really significant. He always lived close to Native Americans and likely was influenced by shamanic activities. For instance, the Algonquin, the Delaware, Fox, Ojibwa, the Potawatomi, the Sauk, in the Northeast and the Great Plains, the Iroquois, Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, Seneca in the Northeast, and the Cherokee in the Southeast, and their shamans resided close enough to Joseph Smith that he would have been captivated by the religious and medical practices. So in 1822, the Seneca Indian chief, Red Jacket, the nephew of Chief Hanson Lake, spoke only miles from where Joseph Smith lived. Red Jacket might have sparked 17-year-old Joseph Smith's interest in Native American culture and seeking a Native American shamanic mentoring. Joseph Smith demonstrated his interest in Native American life at age 18 when he regaled his family with stories of ancient Indian life. And his mother is the one that told on him, right? And later, he partially built his prophetic career on a Native platform with the Book of Mormon. Now, that kind of gives you a new light. Oh, on that Book of Mormon. I, I thought that was uh, nifty that they brought this in. So comparative religionist Ockve Strum has demonstrated many parallels of Joseph Smith's teachings and as well as his practices with those of the native religions of Northeastern North America, especially that of the Algonquin Indians. The parallels are extensive enough that Strum posits that the boy Joseph may have been heavily influenced by an Algonquin neighbor. Smith's Native American influences may have included North American entheogens, such as D. stramonium, Amanita muscaria, and psilocybe species. The Native Americans used entheogens in medical and spiritual practices, such as the Ojibwe, the Midwinnewin, the Midwiwin and Grand Medical Society, the Ojibwa, in their legend of Miskwedo, described the use and effects of Amanita muscaria. Now, and this is, uh, oh, hey, Richard Petchak, welcome. Glad you could make, oh, and Joe Harrison, thank you for making it tonight. Good to see you. And Scott, good to see you. Here's this, uh, let, let me double check one thing real quick. Yeah, this is, this is too good not to include. I hope I'm not boring you to death. I find this stuff just fantastic. Any? Oh, excuse me. I'm sneezing from reading about entheogens. Oh, I hope that's not one of the effects of reading about them. <laughs> Relax. I'm just bluffing. Okay. Yeah, this is really kind of cool. 
this legend from the Native Americans uh, and the theme here. So here's a summary of the version uh, told by a medicine woman. Where Miss Guido, the red-topped mushrooms, the spiritual children of Grandmother Cedar and Grandfather Birch, because, and Carl Ruck again in his uh, magnificent materials. Well, Persephone's Quest is one of them. Without question, one of the best. Oh, and so is uh, so is Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras. Oh, here we go. And the Road to Eleusis. He's got others. I, I can't find him. It's not a big deal. Oh, there they are. Anyway, I've shown them before. The Hidden World and some other ones on the... Uh, Interesting uh, use of European symbolism in their fairy tales. So the Misquedo are the, and, and what Ruck shows is uh, that mushrooms are prominent underneath their main host trees, uh, birches and cedars a lot. So these two brothers came upon Misquedo, turning and revolving, buzzing and murmuring, singing a strange song of happiness under a brilliantly sunny sky. The older brother tried to dissuade his younger brother from eating the mushroom, but defies his brother and merged with the mushroom, becoming a Misquedo himself. Distraught, the older brother ran home to ask the medicine men what to do. And he was told to return, to locate the chief and the wisest Misquedo, and stick the quill of an eagle feather through each of their stipes, that's the gills underneath the mushroom, uh, to stop them turning and singing songs of happiness. Then to do the same to his younger brother and carry him home. So he followed the elder's instruction and his younger brother turned back into his previous form. However, after returning home, the older brother arose in the morning with his heart heavy with sadness and foreboding, while his younger brother arose smiling each day. His heart was filled with happiness, his lips singing merriment. The older brother became suspicious when the younger brother urinated more frequently and took longer than before. When the older brother investigated, he found his younger brother with arms are open wide, spread like the umbrella of a mushroom, with beautiful robes, glowing red and tufts of white, singing with a voice of happiness to the people following him. Now and forever, older brothers are unhappy, in contrast to the younger brothers, who drink the elixir of the great Misquedo, learning much of the supernatural and other knowledge by drinking the liquid power of the sun. Together, these stories transmit knowledge about the Amanita muscaria, where to look for it, how to where to look for it, how to recognize it, and the joys it can bestow, and the displeasure of authorities if it is consumed. For instance, these mushrooms are always associated with trees such as the cedar and the birch, and they have red tops and white tufts. The experience of ingesting these mushrooms includes transient ego disillusion, unity with the divine, and mood elevations. 
The stories also warn of authoritarian displeasure whom themselves refuse, filling their hearts with happiness, try to suppress its use. In the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith relates a similar story about Lehi's use of entheogens. Lehi comes upon a tree laden with fruit that filled his soul with exceeding great joy. However, others, whose dress was exceeding fine, they mocked and they pointed their fingers at those partaking of the fruit. The scoffing caused some who ate from the fruit tree of the tree to feel ashamed and fall away into forbidden paths. Remarkably interesting tie-in, isn't it? So, midwoman shaman are believed to possess the power of a long life. Even victory over death through healing plants and their rituals. Such power strongly suggests that, among other herbal remedies, the Medwiwin shaman utilized entheogenic materials. Delaware and Mohegan peoples were familiar with Datura. Native Americans living in Virginia gave a psychoactive brew called Wysocken to their young men during a rite of passage, causing a derangement for 20 days, strongly suggesting it contained D-stromatium. Datura as the base of a narcotic drink used in manhood initiation rites is what was occurring in 1705. Virginian Indians were reported to have been using Datura in their religious ceremonies, and there was widespread use of Datura in initiation ceremonies in Native North America. And so the tie-in with the, with the Native North Americans, and it's not coincidental because they were definitely utilizing the entheogenic materials as well. Um, the tie-ins are very probable. I'll put it that way. Okay, so I am at about an hour and a half, so I'm going to call it good here. I, I've made much better progress than I did the first time, for sure. So, uh, hey, Joe Harrison, good to see you. I'll be I'll be interested in reading all the comments. I haven't had a chance to tonight, and I'm not going to have a chance to tonight. However, don't forget, tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, Sunday school, and I will continue this discussion. And now they're getting in good. We, we get a look at some early Christianity and some art of the medieval ages. We get to look at the magical materials Joseph Smith had and the art of them, etc., for symbolisms. And we get into much more depth with the sacramental wine based on ancient cultures and in Joseph Smith. So there's a lot of great stuff tomorrow. I'm going to be able to do... Uh, Probably a two-hour Sunday school tomorrow morning and probably a two-hour uh, fireside. I mean, half my day is going to be filled with with uh, entheogens. <laughs> entheogens and Joseph Smith. What a combination, you know. Who would have thunk it, right? 
So anyway, thank you, you guys. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I I just enjoy stuff like this where you get new information from a context that has been suppressed or ignored, uh, and this happens in virtually every study. I mean, seriously, Wolfgang Smith is now doing the exact same thing, and he is discovering the actual context of quantum physics is being left out of our science. And that is one of the things that makes me really enjoy Wolfgang Smith. And uh, one of his one of his books is the, and I've got several of them there around here somewhere. One of his books is The Quantum Enigma. Finding the Hidden Key to the Quantum. And then the other one is the end of quantum physics. And uh, he's got the Philosophia Initiative. Uh, so I'm going to be sharing some Wolfgang Smith stuff too. So this isn't just happening. Uh, it's not like we're trying to pick on early Mormonism or, or pick on modern day Mormonism for goofing up the context, even though we will and we do continue to poke and prod and uh, slash their silly ideas to ribbons uh, because they have distorted them. We want to restore the original truth, kind of like Joseph Smith said he wanted to do. Uh, we are restoring the original truth of Joseph Smith, which Mormonism today has apostatized from. A deep irony, <laughs> right? So uh, I'm going to close it out. Thank you for showing up. Appreciate all of you. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, I will be back in the morning at 10 o'clock for Sunday school. Don't be late or be square. <laughs> or wait, no. Isn't the saying be there or be square? Yeah, I mean, come on. I got to make it poetic, right? I've got to make it rhyme. Otherwise, it's not valid. Yeah. So, okay, you guys. I love y'all. I will see you in the morning. Be good. Do well. Have fun. Sleep good tonight. Have lots of dreams. Ooh, be careful of dreams. Hopefully, they will match Joseph Sr.'s <laughs> and Lehi's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, hey, that's the other thing. Uh, tomorrow morning, come prepared. I'm going to give you some very cool analysis on Joseph Smith's first vision. Yeah, that is hot stuff. They, they really have a hell of an analysis. So, Lots of new stuff coming up, you guys. Never a boring moment with the Backyard Professor. I always try to bring you new materials. So, Okay, you guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. I will see you tomorrow.